Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Welcome to Prognosis. I'm Laura Carlson. It's day 356 since coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. Today's main story, demand for the Pfizer vaccine from everywhere in the world far outstrips supply. That means the company has made tough decisions about how much to supply to different countries. And many world leaders aren't happy about the way they've done it. But first, here's what happened in virus news today. People in the U.S. are warming to the idea of getting a vaccine. A Pew Research poll shows COVID-19 vaccine hesitancy in the country is ebbing. But the same study shows that partisan differences in people's intention to get vaccinated is widening. In November, 39% of people said they probably or definitely wouldn't get a shot. That number declined to 30% in February. About three-quarters agree that widespread vaccination would help the economy, though Republicans are less prone to that view than Democrats. The vaccine being developed by AstraZeneca and Oxford University appears to protect against the Brazilian variant of the disease. A person familiar with the matter told Reuters the shot will not need to be modified to protect against the Brazil P1 variant. Results come from a study by Oxford University that has not yet been made public. Finally, Canada's public health agency licensed Johnson & Johnson's coronavirus vaccine, making it the fourth shot available in the country. Canada is struggling to keep up with its group of seven peers on inoculations. Canada has an agreement to purchase 38 million shots from the New Jersey-based company. The one-dose J&J shot could help Prime Minister Justin Trudeau achieve his target of vaccinating every Canadian that wants one by September. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher-level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. And now for today's main story. Vaccine distribution still has the feel of a zero-sum game. Five days after Israel received 700,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, Pfizer told other non-U.S. customers that it would cut supplies while it briefly closed a facility in Belgium. The disparity in vaccine allocation is the product of a company struggling to apportion doses while demand 
far exceeds supply. I spoke with Stephanie Baker and Cynthia Coons, who reported for Bloomberg Businessweek that the company has determined how many doses a country gets through an opaque process that appears to involve a mix of order size, position in the queue, production forecasts, calls from world leaders, and of course, the desire to make a profit. Vaccine programs have begun to roll out in earnest throughout the U.S. and across much of Europe. Many states are discussing opening eligibility to younger and younger demographics, but many still are awaiting their first shots. Now, this situation is a pretty stark contrast to what's happening in Israel, for example, which you know, currently holds the record of having administered the most COVID vaccine doses per capita than any other country in the world. And just to start off with, you know, what are some of the factors that have accounted for Israel's incredibly accelerated vaccine distribution? You know, Israel, of course, has been a world leader in vaccination, and that is in part due to Pfizer uh, and the deal that uh, Israeli's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu uh, struck with Pfizer's CEO, Albert Borla. Israel was prioritized for two reasons, really. One, um, it paid more, paid almost uh, $30 a dose, which was about 50% more than the U.S. paid. And two, it, it offered to almost exclusively use the Pfizer vaccine in order to generate a real-world effectiveness study to show how the vaccine works in a much larger group of people than in the control controlled trials. And this has generated a stream of positive headlines about how effective the Pfizer vaccine is, which has only helped Pfizer as it's um, marketed at the COVID vaccine worldwide. Um, and it came at a time when Europe um, was being shortchanged uh, with vaccines because Pfizer needed to shut down its Belgian production facility in order to uh, boost production long term. But that that shutdown lasted for about two weeks. And, you know, while Israel was being supplied with uh, millions of doses of vaccines, Europe, European supplies were cut. And, you know, that had a huge effect on Europe's vaccine rollout. Now, Stephanie, you mentioned Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla, and I'm wondering what specifically his role was in this negotiation of vaccine supply and kind of an accelerated timeline with regard to Israel. I mean, what overall does he have control over when when kind of negotiating which countries will receive Pfizer's vaccine first and and the quantities they'll receive? You know, that's a good question. You know, he told us that um, he was more focused on um, the scientific efforts to develop um, a new COVID vaccine against the, the new uh, variants and some of the scientific developments on make it easier to store Pfizer's vaccine, which needs to be kept at subarctic temperatures. But at the same time, during the past six months, he turned into this kind of quasi-statesman, holding talks with world leaders, um, uh, including, you know, he spoke to Israeli's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu more than 20 times. And Netanyahu bragged that he was able to get Borla to take his call even at 2 a.m. Um, he went on to have, you know, talks with uh, the European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen, 
who called and complained when uh, Pfizer announced its uh, cut in mid-January. He had talks with uh, the Canadian leader, Justin Trudeau, who was also upset that Canada had been cut. Um, you know, so he he occupies this very uh, strange position right now where he's the CEO of a pharma giant. But, you know, he is involved in politics, um, whether he likes it or not. And, of course, this uh, effort in Israel came at a crucial time for Netanyahu, who is facing uh, re-election in March, um, and has very much positioned his COVID vaccination campaign as part of his political campaign. And, you know, arguably um, has boosted his chances of re-election. We're often talking about Pfizer because it, it very obviously it was first out of the gate. And understandably, this allowed it to make these kinds of deals with the governments of, as we've been saying, Israel, obviously the U.S. and beyond. But I'm wondering about the logistics of how it was able to to achieve this goal in terms of the amount of investment it did of its own money in research and development, how this has affected negotiating deals with governments and, and in particular setting prices for doses. Yeah, Pfizer's unique in particular because they decided not to take money from Operation Warp Speed, which was the U.S. government program that gave money to manufacturers in order to help spur vaccine development and invest in manufacturing, et cetera. Pfizer didn't didn't need that money, but arguably other large companies that didn't need that money participated and took some. And so that was sort of a public-private partnership, if you will, just to get vaccines going. And the U.S. created essentially created a market for vaccines. And what they did, though, was their deal with the U.S. was that the U.S. had an advanced purchase order. So the U.S. was going to be able to buy something around the tune of $2 billion worth of vaccines. So the U.S. put money on the table and Pfizer had a market. And that's really important, too. It's not insignificant. It still means that they're incentivized to create a vaccine because they're someone who's on the other end who's going to buy it if it works. But it's not the same thing as the government being involved in their day-to-day, getting reports and updates on their manufacturing. And I think this explains some of the snags they hit, at least in the U.S., because the government didn't have the insight into their manufacturing that they did with their competitors. So for, for Pfizer, they've said they spent about $2 billion developing this. Drugs are vaccines, very expensive to develop, especially the trials, the huge trials, which is why a lot of their competitors would have taken money from the government. So Pfizer basically stood a bit apart from the pack, and that did allow it to negotiate in a different way, perhaps even allowed it to go around the world and start striking contracts quite early because, say, Moderna, for example, which was authorized by the FDA at the same time as Pfizer, just around the same time, they had taken substantially more government money and they have not done the number of deals that Pfizer's done around the world. But they're also a smaller company, and Pfizer's already globally, already has a global footprint, so they had that advantage. And that brings up a, an interesting question about profit. What has Pfizer said regarding how much it is expecting to make from its vaccines, and how does this contrast perhaps with some of the other drug makers, say Moderna and whatnot? So Pfizer has uh, said it expects uh, initial profit margins in the high 20% range, which is high for a vaccine. During the pandemic, this is they're, they're looking at it in terms of pandemic pricing, that they could look at increasing that price after the pandemic is over when people have a choice of what vaccine they want. And they believe they have 
you know, high brand recognition, widely regarded as a very highly effective vaccine and that people will want it uh, over some of the other vaccines. In contrast, you have uh, manufacturers like AstraZeneca that has promised to sell the vaccine globally on a not-for-profit basis for just a couple dollars a dose. Um, Johnson & Johnson has also uh, promised to do that, sell it on a not-for-profit basis. And, you know, the way this really comes to the the fore is looking at how all these drug manufacturers have interacted with COVAX, the World Health Organization-backed facility to distribute vaccines to low-income countries. Uh, Pfizer, at the end of January, um, did a deal with COVAX to sell 40 million doses, which is about 2% of Pfizer's projected output this year. And to put that into context, uh, Astra did a deal for 170 million doses, and Johnson & Johnson has a preliminary COVAX deal for 500 million doses. Um, and there's another deal that COVAX did with the Serum Institute of India that is producing the AstraZeneca vaccine, again, for just a few dollars a dose. So that sort of puts Pfizer into a very different league in terms of COVID vaccines and how much they're likely to make from them. And just to add to that, the, the top line number here is that Pfizer has said they expect revenue of $15 billion this year. And that doesn't that includes the contracts they've already struck or bakes in the contracts they anticipate. So there's an ability for them to now continue to make deals around the world and make more than 15 billion. They're not going to take home 15 billion. They have a partnership with BioNTech. Just to be clear, 15 billion dollars makes it among one of the biggest selling drugs in the world. And that never happens right out of the gate. Drug companies never come out of the gate with a huge selling product. They usually come out and takes years to get to these levels. So for Pfizer, it's extraordinary revenue and income boost. Returning to the question of Pfizer CEO Bourla, what are your reactions, let's say, to to an accusation that that someone like Bourla, a, a CEO of a drug maker, shouldn't be wielding this amount of power in terms of, you know, supply and cost of vaccines? I mean, you know, he's not a, a public or an elected official, but, you know, he, at the end of the day, is making some of the most important decisions in a global health crisis. I think the real issue is that most people in global public health don't think that this is how uh, we should be fighting the, the pandemic. This is not the best way to end the pandemic and to bring infection rates down around the world. But the fact of the matter is, is that Pfizer, together with BioNTech and its brilliant scientists, stepped up to the plate and developed an incredibly effective vaccine. The question, I think, is um, whether or not it ought to have been following a a more uh, not-for-profit approach like some of the other vaccine developers during the pandemic. And I think that that would have made it easier to get the vaccine out more widely, made it perhaps easier for um, the likes of uh, of COVAX to buy more doses or uh, for other countries to do bilateral deals. But, you know, when you think about how we might fight the next pandemic um, and when governments are putting up money for research and development, whether or not there are more strings attached so that governments have a bit more control when some of these drugs uh, get to the market. I, I think, too, this is sort of a fundamental question about capitalism and healthcare, right? And it's come up 
in every iteration of analyzing the U.S. healthcare system, when you overlay the need for a company to make profits because it's answering to shareholders and the reality that these drugs or vaccines are life-saving and therefore should there be, you know, someone else in charge. And so the COVAX plan obviously didn't pan out. There have been other examples of this. The WHO wanted a patent pool that didn't exactly pan out because pharma companies need to own that IP in order to make money off these products in future years. So I think what this story highlights is something that's really chronic in nature in that we have this capitalist healthcare system. And when it comes to the vaccine and public health, it just appears to be a mismatch. But how do we rein that in? How do we change that? And that's really the question. That was Stephanie Baker and Cynthia Coons. And that's it for our show today. For coverage of the outbreak from 120 bureaus around the world, visit Bloomberg.com coronavirus. And if you like the show, please leave us a review and a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It's the best way to help more listeners find our global reporting. The Prognosis Daily Edition is produced by Topher Foreheads, Magnus Henriksen, and me, Laura Carlson. Today's main story was reported by Stephanie Baker and Cynthia Coons. Original music by Leo Cedrin. Our editors are Rick Shine and Francesca Levy. Francesca Levy is Bloomberg's head of podcasts. Thanks for listening. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.